0: Hello and welcome to the podcast that helps Christian men win the race Christ has marked out for them. No man wants to fail at his mission to impact others for Christ, but we will if we forget one of the commands of Peter that is a prerequisite for having such an impact. Be ready. Always be ready, writes Peter, to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. 1 Peter 3.15 In other words, Peter commands every Christian to prepare ahead of time. That's what ready means. What are we to prepare ourselves to do? Make a logical defense of our faith. That is what the Greek word defense means. It is apologia. Apo means from or since. Logia is the word from which we get logic. So we have from logic, since logic. This episode helps us be prepared and prepare our loved ones to give a logical answer to a very common accusation that Christians hear. You can't take the Bible literally. Thanks for joining us today for season number one, episode number 51 of Mission Focused Men. My name is Gary Yeagle. Apologetics is logically defending the faith. And in case we missed the emphasis on logic, Peter commands not only be ready to make a defense, that word defense being apologia, he repeats the reference to logic as the verse continues, to anyone who asks you for the reason. The word translated reason is, again, logia or logos. Authors Ken Boa and Larry Moody point out two good reasons for every Christ follower to know apologetics well. They write, Apologetics, arguments systematically defending the Christian faith, really has a twofold purpose. Outwardly, it defends the truth of the Christian worldview and answers the objectives raised by critics. Inwardly, It strengthens the faith of believers by showing that their faith rests upon a firm foundation. Many Christians shy away from defending their beliefs or resort to a just-take-it-by-faith attitude. They think the burden of apologetics is too great to be shouldered by laymen. But Peter exhorts us all, be ready to make a defense when we are called to do so. So we need to strengthen the faith of our loved ones by showing them that the Christian faith is based on a firm foundation and equip them to endure the experience of their faith being challenged by accusations that they fear do not have good answers. Accusations like, well, the Bible's full of contradictions and historical errors, or we can't even know what the original Bible even said, or... Archaeology has proven that the Bible has errors. Or, the Bible is a historically unreliable collection of legends. So how do we respond to these arguments? Let's first look at how to answer the argument that we can't trust the Bible historically. Let's consider four ways to test the historical accuracy of any document, including today's Bible. This test examines the transmission of the original writings down to the present day by evaluating the quantity and quality of manuscripts, time span between events and the dating of the manuscript we have, and archaeological evidence to support historical accuracy. So first, consider the quantity of manuscripts. In the case of the Old Testament, there is a small number of Hebrew manuscripts because the Jewish scribes ceremonially buried imperfect and worn manuscripts. As we'll see, though, that low number of manuscripts is more than made up for by the care with which they were transcribed. The number of New Testament manuscripts, however, is unparalleled in ancient literature. In museums around the world, there are 24,000 ancient manuscripts of portions of the New Testament. By comparison, the number of manuscripts of the writings of Plato is seven. The writings of Aristotle is 49. The second highest number of manuscripts behind the New Testament's 24,000 is 643 copies of Homer's Iliad. With so many copies of the New Testament manuscript in hand, we have a very good idea of what the original said. Second, consider the quality of manuscripts. Because of the great reverence the Jewish scribes held toward the scriptures, they exercised extreme care in making new copies of the Hebrew Bible. The entire scribal process was specified in meticulous detail to minimize the possibility of even the slightest error. The number of letters, words, and lines were counted, and the middle letters of the Pentateuch and Old Testament were determined. If a single mistake was discovered, the entire manuscript would be destroyed. As a result of this extreme care, the quality of manuscripts of the Hebrew Bible surpasses all other ancient manuscripts. In addition to that reliability, The 1947 discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in caves near the Qumran community excavation revealed an intact copy of the entire book of Isaiah, scientifically dated then to about 100 B.C. These scrolls contain fragments of 65 out of the 66 books of the Old Testament. Now, regarding the New Testament, the sheer quantity of manuscripts do display various copying errors, but they enable scholars to have tremendous certainty about 99.5% of the original text, and no variant readings are significant enough to call into question any of the doctrines of the New Testament. So the quality of our manuscripts is unsurpassed. Next, let's consider the time span of manuscripts. By that, we mean the years between the original events and the dating of the manuscripts we have that describe those events. Apart from the Dead Sea Scrolls, the earliest text of the Old Testament is 895 A.D. due to the systematic destruction of prior texts by the Mesoretic Scribes. But knowing what we know now about their meticulousness in copying the documents, the later dating is really not a worry. When it comes to the New Testament, we have manuscripts dated from the first century, and most of the New Testament from the second century. So the time span between the actual writing of the Gospels, or Paul's letters, and our oldest manuscripts is sometimes less than 75 years. The contrast to the other best-known ancient writings is enormous. For example, the span between Homer's writing of the Iliad and the oldest manuscript copy we have is 500 years. Between Plato's writing and our oldest manuscript, it's 1,200 years. Between Aristotle's life and our oldest manuscript is 1,400 years. The historic evidence that what our current Bible says is what was originally written is unsurpassed by any other historical or religious book in the world. Our fourth consideration in evaluating the historic accuracy of the Bible is archaeology. Because the historical narratives of the Bible are so specific, many of its details are open to archaeological investigation. And today, let me tell you, archaeology is the Bible's best friend, having proven the accuracy of the biblical writers time and time and time again. Now, it was not always this way. In the late 1900s, archaeologists made many claims that seemed to completely overthrow the integrity of the Bible. Consider just a few. For years, liberal scholars used to laugh at the Bible-believing Christians, saying, what about the Hittites? There was zero evidence in archaeology that any such nation ever existed. That is, until 1906, when the Hittite capital was unearthed and a whole Hittite civilization discovered. On one college campus where Bible-believing scholars had been scorned for believing the biblical accounts of the Hittites, a few years later a course was being offered in the Hittite language. God has a great sense of humor. New Testament references were also attacked frequently for inconsistency with archaeological findings. Remember, this was back at the end of the 19th century before the explosion in archaeology. For example, scholars laughed at John's description. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Not only could they not find the pool, but pools never were built in the shape of a pentagon. Except that when this site was later excavated, it revealed a rectangular pool with two basins separated by a wall, thus a five-sided pool. Two years ago, I looked down on the ruins of this pool in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate, five-sided. So the historic accuracy of the biblical accounts has been proven over and over again by the science of archaeology. Now, this evidence does not prove it is the Word of God, but there is more scientific evidence for its historical accuracy than for any other ancient book in the world. Let's next answer the argument, the Jesus story is a legend. Mythology perpetuated by dishonest, power-hungry ecclesiastical leaders. This thesis lies behind books and movies like The Da Vinci Code. Tim Keller was actually taught this view while a student years ago at Bucknell University. He explains what he was taught, that the real historical Jesus was a charismatic teacher of justice and wisdom who provoked opposition and was executed. After his death, they said, different parties and viewpoints emerged among his followers about who he was. Some claimed he was divine and risen from the dead. Others, that he was just a human teacher who lived on spiritually in the hearts of his disciples. After a power struggle, the quote-unquote divine Jesus party won and created texts that promoted its views. They allegedly suppressed and destroyed all the alternative texts showing us a different sort of Jesus. Recently, some of these suppressed alternative views of Jesus have come to light, like the Gnostic Gospels of Thomas and Judas. Keller realized that this view of the New Testament's origins strikes at the root of our confidence in everything Jesus taught and did. He continues the story, As a student, I was initially shaken by this. How could all of these prominent scholars be wrong? Then, however, as I did my own firsthand research, I was surprised by how little evidence there actually was for these historic reconstructions. To my encouragement, the evidence for this older skeptical view of the Bible has been crumbling steadily for the past 30 years, even as it has been promoted by the popular media through books and movies such as The Da Vinci Code. There are numerous reasons for rejecting the idea that the Jesus story is a made-up legend. But let's look at just one. The timing of New Testament documents is way too early for the Gospels to have ever become legends. The Gospels of the Bible were written at the very most 40 to 60 years after Jesus' death. Paul's letters, written just 15 to 25 years after Jesus' death, provided an outline of the events of Jesus' life found in the Gospels, his miracles, claims, crucifixion, and resurrection. This means that the biblical accounts of Jesus' life were circulating within the lifetime of hundreds who had been present at the events of his ministry. Repeatedly, in fact, the Gospel writers spoke about eyewitness testimony and often named those witnesses in the text. Luke claims that he got his account of Jesus' life from eyewitnesses who were still alive. Mark says that the man who helped Jesus carry his cross was, quote, the father of Alexander and Rufus. There is no reason to include the names unless the readers know or have access to them. Paul appealed to eyewitnesses of the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, he writes, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. You can't write that in a document designed for public reading unless there really are witnesses whose testimonies agree and who would confirm what the author said. It was not only Christ's supporters who were still alive when the New Testament books were written. Also still alive would be many bystanders, officials, and enemies of Christ who witnessed these events they would have been especially ready to challenge any legendary fictions perpetrated on the masses. Logic tells us, For a highly altered fictionalized account of an event to take hold in the public imagination, it is necessary that the eyewitnesses and their children and grandchildren all be long dead. They must be off the scene so that they cannot contradict or debunk the embellishments or falsehoods of the story. The Gospels were written far too soon for this to occur. So we've seen that the historical accuracy of the New Testament documents surpasses that of any other ancient document, and that the stories simply don't fit the definition of a legend at all. But what evidence is there that the Bible is the supernatural word of God? Well, consider fulfilled prophecy. In the writings of neither Buddha nor Confucius is there any hint of predictive prophecy, nor does the Quran contain any predictive prophecy except the self-fulfilling prophecy that Muhammad would return to Mecca. In contrast, history shows hundreds and hundreds of specific biblical prophecies that have been fulfilled historically. Here are just two. Consider prophecy concerning the city of Tyre. Here's a part of the prophecy from Ezekiel 26. Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and will bring up many nations against you as the sea brings up its waves. They shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers, and I will scrape her soil from her and make her a bare rock. She shall be in the midst of the sea, a place for the spreading of nets, for I have spoken, declares the Lord. And she shall become plunder for the nations, and her daughters on the mainland shall be killed by the sword. Then they will know that I am the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring against Tyre from the north, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Your stones and timber and soil, they will cast into the midst of the waters. And I will stop the music of your songs, and the sound of your lyres shall be heard no more. I will make you a bare rock. You shall be a place for the spreading of nets." A few years after Ezekiel made this prophecy, the great Nebuchadnezzar brought his army to Tyre and laid siege to it for 13 years. Finally, the walls of the city crumbled enough for the hordes of the Babylonian army to pour into the city on the mainland and put its remaining inhabitants to the sword, just as Scripture predicted. But thousands fled to an island a half mile out in the Mediterranean. The prophecy was fulfilled only in part. For 250 years, the ruined walls of the mainland city still stood jutting into the sky. Millions of tons of stone, rubble, and timbers were left. And yet God had said that the city would be scraped clean like the top of a rock, that the stones and timbers and the very dust of the city would be cast into the sea. It appeared that Ezekiel got some of the details of his prophecy wrong. But then a new conqueror, Alexander the Great, arose. He came to New Tyre, the city a half a mile from the mainland. He ordered its inhabitants to surrender. When they laughed, Alexander and his chief engineer, Diades, decided to erect a causeway across the half mile to the island. But why could they do that? Where were all the stones, timber, and soil they needed? The ruins of old Tyre. Alexander issued an order to his men, quote, tear down the walls from the ruins of the old Tyre, take the timbers and the stones, the rubble and the logs, and cast them into the sea. These are the very same objects, stones, timber, and soil mentioned by Ezekiel's prophecy that would be, quote, cast into the midst of the waters. History tells us that Alexander's army scraped the ruined city itself to get everything they could to build this highway in order to destroy the new Tyre. When the causeway was completed, new Tyre was besieged, destroyed, and leveled. But what about the detail about fishing nets? One pastor noted, A member of my church recently visited the city of Tyre and returned with pictures of new Tyre. They showed nets spread out on a flat rock, that once had been the proud city of Tyre. Tyre had become a fishing village. Consider the city of Babylon. This was perhaps the greatest city of ancient times. It consisted of 196 square miles of spectacular architecture, hanging gardens and palaces, temples and towers. Yet God said through the prophet Isaiah, and Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them, Isaiah thirteen nineteen. More specifically, the prophet Jeremiah made these prophecies about Babylon in chapter 50, verse 39. Therefore, wild beasts shall dwell with hyenas in Babylon, and ostriches shall dwell in her. She shall never again have people nor be inhabited for all generations. Babylon today is a trackless wasteland inhabited by jackals and scorpions. Consider Jeremiah 51, verses 42 to 43. The water has come up on Babylon. She is covered with its tumultuous waves. Her cities have become a horror, a land of drought and a desert, a land in which no one dwells and through which no one passes this appears to contain two contradictory prophecies that babylon will be covered with water and that it will be a dry desolate land a visitor to the site where babylon once stood points out for the space of two months each year the ruins of babylon are inundated by the annual overflowing of the euphrates river so as to render many parts of them inaccessible After the subsiding of the waters, the site of Babylon becomes a dry waste, a parched plain. D. James Kennedy writes, God said Babylon would never be built again, a prophecy totally contrary to the expectations of the past, where every city of the Near East that had been destroyed had been built again. Babylon was situated in the most fertile part of the Euphrates Valley, And yet 2,500 years have come and gone, and Babylon, to this day, remains an uninhabited waste. God's Word is truth, and the Bible is God's Word. (music) To summarize this episode, Christian men need to lead the way in obedience to Peter's command to be ready to make a logical defense of our faith and to equip our loved ones to do so, which will enormously strengthen their faith and confidence to stand for Christ. The historical evidence that what our current Bible says is what was originally written is unsurpassed in any other historical or religious book, and the accuracy of these writers has been proved by the modern science of archaeology again and again. The popular idea that the New Testament documents are just legends made up by a certain faction of his disciples is nonsense. The New Testament was written within one generation of the actual events and specifically points to eyewitness testimony from those who often still are alive to verify these events. No legend happens this way. Finally, the supernatural character of the Bible is demonstrated repeatedly by history, which verifies biblical prophecies being fulfilled. Prophecies against Tyre and Babylon are just two of many of those fulfilled prophecies. For further prayerful thought, number one, what would you say to someone who says, I think the Bible tells spiritual truth, but the events it records are not always real historical events? Please see your show notes for the other questions. This week's resource highlight is episode number 33 from June 21st. Responding to the argument that the Bible teaches patriarchy. This frequent accusation about Christianity is used to marginalize Christians and will stop some from even considering Christianity. So we need to know and help our kids know how to refute it. Today's podcast, as all podcasts are, is available in printed form on my website, forgingbonds.org. For this podcast series surrounding our loved ones with the belt of truth, The blog version is designed for you to print, to share with your wife or kids, and include some extra links to resources used for the podcast. Next week, we complete our series surrounding our loved ones with the belt of truth. The episode title is Shaping Culture in a World That Jesus Said Hates You. If this podcast has been helpful to you, don't forget to tell other Christian men about a podcast that helps them stay focused on pleasing Christ by completing his mission for them, inspiring them each week while they commute or work out.